recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh. Today is Saturday, June 2nd, 2012, and tonight I'm here with Pastor Mark Downey, and we're going to talk about Catholicism. I haven't really given this program a, a title yet. Maybe I will at the end of the program so I can post it on my website. But this is, um, it's going to be a discussion of Catholicism um, that there is, you know, here in, in northern Kentucky, and I never believed this. It, it, it seemed incredible to me, but I, I mean, I don't disbelieve the witness that the, um, there are a lot more Catholics here than I imagined. And, and um, Catholicism has to be addressed, and it has to be addressed effectively by Christian identists Hopefully tonight we'll just see some of the arguments and some of the faults of Roman Catholicism and, and we'll give Christian identists some of the tools to do that with. And that's the gist of tonight's program. Hello, Mark. How, how are you doing? Hi, Bill. I'm doing fine. And greetings to the kindred and uh, the audience this evening. Well, why would you like to begin? Uh, I mean, Catholic, it's a big topic, right? It's a huge topic. I mean, we could talk about it all night, I hope. <laughs> well, when I first latched on to this, uh, this idea of uh, uh, Catholicism, I've always had the uh, belief that uh, Catholicism is not Christian. And, and going from that uh, premise, uh, I think, a lot of our people uh, need to be informed and, and corrected of that uh, mistaken notion that uh, the Roman Catholic Church is is anything but Christian. And uh, you're right. Where do you start with such a big subject? Uh, I um, when I first started investigating this, uh, 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 that was a, a bigger task than what I first anticipated and uh, it, it really is a tough question when you ask when did the Catholic Church first begin what was its foundations and who started it and uh, uh, it's it's not as easily answered as one might suppose you can take the uh, uh, standard Catholic line uh, 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 what they say, but you quickly find out that uh, it's not true, uh, especially in light of uh, the scriptures that are provided for us. Well, well, I'd like to start with what the word Catholic really means and what the word Catholic originally meant to the Ante Nicene, the, the Christian writers who wrote before the Council of Nicaea. And they used that word Catholic or Catholicus in a very different way than the later universal Roman Catholic Church used the word. In fact, the word Catholicus comes from two Greek words, kata. Kata is, is a, um, a prefix. It, it's also a preposition which means down. And very often it's translated in certain contexts in the King James Version of the Bible as according to. Now the word holocaust is the genitive form of a Greek word holos, which means whole. And we see that the components of the word catholicus means according to the whole. 
a lot of people take it for granted that the word means universal. That's not how Irenaeus used the word. That's not how other early church writers, early Christian writers, used the word. They used the word in order to contrast themselves to the Jews and to contrast themselves to New Testament-only sects. There were New Testament-only sects in the second century. Marcion was the founder of a New Testament-only heresy. And he didn't even accept the whole New Testament. He only accepted the letters of Paul and the, the, letters, the, the records of Luke, meaning the Acts and the Gospel of Luke, and the letters of Paul, and he cut out parts of those that had to do with the Hebrew Old Testament. Irenaeus testifies to that. Where the real Christians considered themselves Catholicus because it means according to the whole. The Jews only, they rejected all gospel writings and only clung to the Old Testament and the rituals. The Marcionites and other Gnostic heretics only accepted parts of the New Testament. The real mainstream or, or Orthodox Christians of the time accepted the Old Testament scripture and the New Testament scripture. So they called themselves Catholicus because their faith was according to all the scriptures, the whole scripture, the Old Testament and the New. So you might say there's uh, two kinds of unities that emerged from the early church and that uh, um, the early Christians were uh, looking at the word of God holistically uh, in, in the sense of the word that you just mentioned. Right, whole. Uh, as opposed to a, a false church that was developing at the same time that wanted the, uh, an evil type of, uh, they wanted the whole enchilada uh, of all these sects and, and diverse religious groups, which uh, we'll see is what be, the Catholic Church became. Right, and, and the Catholic Church as it stands, it, it, and, and you started to get to this before, and we could have went in this direction right away. They claim a foundation on the Apostle Peter especially, and the Apostles Peter and Paul in general. Christ said to us, uh, and, and they use, they, I shouldn't say use, they abuse Matthew 16 from verse 13, in order to somehow prove that because Peter founded the church at Rome, that it was handed down from Peter, he's the bedrock the church was built on, and, and the apostolic succession through the bishops of Rome goes through them to the modern-day popes. That entire thing is just Roman church propaganda. That entire story is a lie. Yeah. It doesn't hold up. Peter did not even found the assemblies at Rome. Paul wrote to the assemblies at Rome, and Paul never mentioned Peter. He never mentioned any of the apostles that we know from the gospel, not one. Now, if Paul's writing to the assemblies at Rome, and Paul writes to the assemblies at Rome before he ever visited Rome, before Paul ever visited Rome, and his epistle to the Romans proves this, there were several Christian churches or Christian assemblies at Rome, and they're listed in Romans chapter 16. There were at least two or three houses 
private houses where Christian assemblies, where Christians would gather, and they would gather there regularly. Now, the first 16 or 18 bishops of Rome were all martyred. Christ didn't mean to tell Peter that his church would be founded on Peter. Christ told Peter, and, and I'm going to quote the Christogenian New Testament, then Yahshua, having come into the regions of Caesarea Philippus, questioned his students, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He says to them, But who do you say that I am? And replying, Simon Peter said, You are the anointed son of Yahweh who is living. And replying, Yahshua said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And this is the important part here. And I say to you that you are a stone. The Greek word there is petros, a stone. That's what petros means. It's a stone that you find laying on the ground. It's a stone you might stub your toe on. It's a stone that was small enough to pick up and throw at somebody. And upon this bedrock, that word is Petra. And a lot of Catholics just scoff at the difference. They just push it and brush it aside. Oh, that difference is meaningless. Well, if you look throughout all the classics, a Petros is a stone and Petra is bedrock. We cannot see what Christ was motioning when he said those words. We can't see what he was intoning with his hands, with his motions, with his actions. But he said, you're a stone, and upon this bedrock, I will build my assembly. The bedrock is usually suggesting a foundation, and that's the critical issue. What is the foundation of Christianity? If we imagine the foundation of Christianity to be Peter, we can dispose of Christ. We can dispose of the Old Testament and, and the prophets. That's what Catholics are doing they're exalting Peter rather than Christ. And uh, wasn't it um, Christ who called Peter Satan? What well, kind of foundation would it be to have a Satan as the foundation of the church? Well, well right. Christ in the sense that Peter was being adversarial to him. Because that's what Satan means adversary. Mm -hmm. And anybody who disputes the word of God is God's adversary. And, and in this case, Peter was being adversarial because Christ was telling him what would happen to him. And Christ said, get behind me, adversary, because Peter was disputing with the word of God, which is an example to us all, that we can all turn to evil and oppose God if we oppose his word. To say Peter was the foundation or bedrock would be to put man in the place of a, a deity, the deity of Christ. Well, well absolutely. And, and that's the bedrock. The bedrock is really the law and the prophets and the word of God. That, that, and, and that is Christ. Christ is the embodiment of the word of God. And that's the bedrock that has to be where we look to for the founding of the people of God, well, which is basically he, he admits to being the man who sowed 
the, the seal with the wing. Who are the people of God? He is the bedrock of the church. And nobody, Paul said that nobody can lay a foundation other than Christ. The Catholic Church is trying to claim Peter is our foundation, and they're ignoring Christ in that claim. They're belittling Christ. That seems to be what the, the Catholics are trying to do, is to find a vicarious or a, a substitute for Christ, uh, first in uh, the person of Peter, and secondly in the office of the Pope. Right, and then they could carry down through themselves and legitimize they're claimed to be the viker or the replacement for Christ on earth. And that's evil. A living God does not need a replacement. Let me just uh, refer a few sins in the lives of Catholic popes uh, to quickly dispatch the notion that uh, popes uh, are anything but uh, a good foundation for Christianity. Uh, at least four popes are admitted to have illegitimate children. At least five popes were the sons of priests. Uh, some of these priests may have been married but left their families. So, so that's, a, that's a, you know, illegitimate child in that sense may not be bad because if, if a white pope and a white woman got together and had a white child, that, but that does show that the papacy is hypocritical because they've, made these laws about abstinence, and they've broken them. Well, we can talk about celibacy a little bit later, but that ties into it and certainly shows them for the hypocrite, uh, the hypocrisy uh, that they claim to practice. Um, so at least six popes were excommunicated or condemned as heretics, and uh, the church was disturbed some 25 times by rival claimants of the papacy. And the strike was always an occasion of scandal, sometimes even violence and bloodshed. And uh, for 40 years in the 14th century, two and even three pretenders to the papacy claimed the allegiance of the Catholic community. So just that short synopsis of... Uh, well, well, what about, I don't know if you plan on talking about it later, but what about all the child abuse? He who hurts one of these little ones. It'll be better for him if a millstone were tied around his neck. What about all the child abuse that these popes, in modern times we have witnessed, that they've brushed under the rug, they've never punished the offenders. They should be taking these priests and putting millstones around their necks and casting them into the sea, and instead they transfer them to more comfortable areas. They hide them in big cities where they could molest more children. Well, that, that certainly has been catapulted into the limelight in, in recent times. Uh, I don't know if it was that bad in the first century as it is now, but uh, uh, just the, the utter depravity and corruption of the history, the sordid history of the Catholic Church, uh, shouldn't surprise anybody when they're more informed about the nature of the Catholic Church itself. In the first century, it was that bad. It was that bad. In the pagan priesthood, which really became, they were the real successors of the Catholic Church, because in the third and fourth centuries, it was the, the newly made Christian pagan priests that carried on all the pagan traditions and labeled it with Christianity, slapped a Christian label on it, and kept all the same practices. Tertullian talked about 
the vile, disgusting, sex, perverted sexual acts that were carried on in the first and second century, second century pagan temples. And they're the real successors or, or, or predecessors of today's popes. Yeah, that's true, but I don't know if they had billions of dollars in payouts towards the uh, victims uh, in those times, and, and there was probably not the shame associated uh, with it that we see today, um, because paganism was being absorbed uh, into uh, this, this sweeping uh, urge for uh, the whole enchilada, and, and uh, uh, in that sense, the, the early uh, notion of Catholicism uh, was to include, it was a, a very much uh, a religion of inclusion, uh, regardless of what the previous idols and, and uh, uh, deities uh, were that were worshipped, let alone their uh, moral proclivities. Uh, and, and they had no qualms about um, those practices within the church, the Catholic Church. I'm sure the, uh, the Christian churches had a, a completely different moral compass uh, at that time than their competitors. Well, well absolutely. And, and when, when um, it, it's, it, it's very difficult to document but it should be fully evident to anyone who actually reads the earliest Christian writers and then reads Eusebius and the Christian writers after the Nicene Council when Christianity was legitimized in the empire, which is what happened with, with, with the time of Constantine. It didn't become an official religion. It became a legitimate, recognized religion in the empire. Before the time of the Nicene Council, you would be hard-pressed to find the words Christian priest in any of the writings of the earliest Christian writers. It didn't exist. I haven't found it yet. I haven't read them all, but you could search logos, you could search the writings of the earliest Christian writers, and you'll be very hard-pressed to find the term Christian priest. You won't find it in Tertullian, Irenaeus, Clement. It's not there because we're all priests in Christianity. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a chosen race. Now, in the fourth century, the word Christian priest starts to become popular in the writings of the Christian bishops and, and Christian scholars. And this word Christian priest is basically just a pagan priest turns Christian, keeping his pagan practices. They had to keep their vocation safe. So they created the idea of a Christian priest, a special priesthood and rituals, which they reinstituted as Christian rituals. They were never Christian rituals. Yeah, there's only a few names or titles uh, that were given in the New Testament to uh, those servants of Christ being bishops or elders and uh, deacons. There were no... Uh, popes or cardinals or uh, a um, well, a hierarchy. There, there was no hierarchy in the early Christian church. 
and, and the early Christian church, and this is established on my website in, in a paper I wrote called Misconceptions of Paul and the Church. In the early Christian church, in the, in the assemblies that Paul created, those assemblies elected their bishops. A bishop, bishop comes from a word episcopus in Latin, which comes from the word episcopus in Greek. And an episcopus is simply a supervisor or an overseer. And that's what a bishop should be, a supervisor or an overseer. And Peter equated those with presbyters because the tradition is that the assembly elect a presbyter, which is an elder, of its own community to be the overseer of the administration of that community. And that man, since he was elected by the assembly, that man is responsible to his people. His re he's responsible. He answers to his people. He is a servant above all the other servants because he's given the most responsibility. If you want to be, if you want to follow me, you'll have to be a servant. If he who wants to rule over the assembly has to be the servant of the assembly. That they're the words of Christ. Now, the the deacons. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, and almost everywhere in the King James Version, that's translated as minister. In some places in the King James Version, that's translated as deacon. Strangely, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it says that a minister must be the husband of one wife, they translated it deacon. But it meant minister. It's the same word, diakonis. Deacon is really just a transliteration of diakon, with the O-S dropped off, diakonis. Now, the Anglican Church did that so that they could have deacons, lower people in the church, and ministers, higher people in the church, as separate offices to support their hierarchy. And they built their hierarchy in the mistranslations in the King James Version. If you translate it minister here, you can't distinguish it as deacon there. That's dishonest. It's the same word in both places. I might mention um, the difference between um, a presbyter, uh, which was the, the Christian side, as opposed to the Episcopals uh, on the Catholic side. The, the presbyter was like a grassroots type movement from the bottom up. Well, the Episcopal right. was uh, like a pyramidal structure of authority going from the top down. Well, well, that's the way it was seen in the Middle Ages, and that's correct. But originally, right, the presbyter is the elder, and the episcopus is the appointed leader, but both of them are bottom-up. One word, and Sayer explains this well, one word, episcopus, comes from the Greek culture, and the other word, or the other idea, because the word is a Greek word, but the idea is more Hebrew, comes from the Hebrew culture, right? And, and Peter equated them in his epistle because they really are the same office in a way. 
Because a community could have many presbyters, it could have many elders, but Peter equated episcopist and presbyter because in the Christian model, it should be an elder of the community who's chosen to lead the community. Now, there's a word in the New Testament, it appears twice in the Acts, it's chirotonio. It means to stretch out the hand, and they use that to describe the act of voting. And that word, where it appears in Acts, was translated in the Anglican, in the King James Version, as ordained. But it doesn't mean ordained. They did that to support the idea that a higher authority could ordain an, an episcopus, a bishop over a community. That's why they translated the word in that manner. But the word chirotonio really means to elect. And that election in the book of Acts, in all of the assemblies that Paul founded, that election was held by the people. The people chose their own leaders. Well, the, uh, the first clergy in, in the area of Rome really had a humble spirit and really didn't aspire to, to outrank their, their brethren. They, they had the, the Christ-like attitude or spirit uh, of serving their own kind. Whereas, and, and this was a, a slow evolution uh, of their competitors, which was to become the Catholic Church, uh, with this, this growing uh, esteem uh, by the, uh, the various localities where the churches were, uh, Rome was, was very much uh, riding on the shirt tails of the Roman Empire and had this uh, reflection upon the power and the grandeur that uh, the Caesars exercised and thought, why not have an ecclesiastical empire? And so they uh, evolved uh, along the lines, not scripturally or what Christ admonished, but uh, from the Caesars. Uh, to exploit uh, those below them. And uh, it was no longer uh, humble admonitions, but rather uh, commands uh, with the tone of uh, authority. Uh, and it kept getting worse and worse uh, from what we know uh, in Catholic history to the point where uh, murder and mayhem, uh, if you don't believe the, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, you would die. And, and uh, everybody has certainly heard of the, the Inquisitions uh, uh, much later, but uh, that, that started early on, that uh, attitude that, that uh, uh, the, uh, in Rome especially, that they would not just be a bishop, but they would be a bishop of bishops, uh, which is mimicking uh, Christ being the king of kings or the lord of lords. They were uh, imitating that uh, for themselves rather than for Christ. Well, well, there is historical evidence in the pages of Eusebius that from the 4th century 
the Roman bishop did attempt to exert a supposed authority over the other bishops of the world. And Eusebius discusses that. Now, that was not recognized officially until the 6th century. And when it was recognized in the 6th century, that is not really the roots, but that is the foundation of the Roman Catholic power as we know it. And I would like to read from um, Justinian's novels, and it might take me a, a, a second to find this, if we have a little patience. Justinian, and this is what I wrote in Christ Strike in my Revelation commentary, and I was discussing Daniel 7.24 through 7.25, and I believe, and, and Clifton M. Heiser, and, and I believe Howard Rand also, correctly identified this as pointing to the papacy because it's, it, it follows the succession of empires described in prophecy. And then there's 10 little horns and an 11th little horn that grew out of these. And, and Justinian was actually, actually the 11th emperor of the Byzantine Empire. And I'm going to read this. And then the 10 horns out of this kingdom are 10 kings that shall arise. And another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. That describes Justinian historically, who, who reconquered the, the Zandalic and, and Gothic conquest of the old empire and subdued them, right? And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And we see the Catholic popes changed. The laws, Justinian changed the law. Justinian wrote something called the Constitutions, and it was a recodification of Roman law. And among the Constitutions was a book called the Novels, and that means kind of like the new things. The Novels were Justinian's laws, which were added to the recodification of Roman law. And one of the things that Justinian's laws established, and this is about 534 AD, right? Justinian said in his novels in section 131 that the bishops of Rome would be the ultimate religious authority over all the Christian assemblies of the empire. And that surely was novel in Christianity. It was unheard of in Christianity that any single episcopus or bishop of a Christian assembly would have to answer to another bishop. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we will not rule over your faith. We're here in, the five, in, in 534 AD, Justinian is decreeing that the bishop of Rome, and this had been in the works for, the bishops of Rome had tried to get this rolling for a long time. It's true. And they finally were successful with Justinian, that Justinian decreed that the Bishop of Rome would be the head over all the Christian bishops. It's in his laws. That's when it officially began, and that's when all the bishops, all the Christian assemblies of the empire, those within Justinian's control, had no recourse but to submit themselves to the Bishop of Rome. 
Now, that power really wasn't consolidated until the time of Pope Gregory, who they called the Great. But it started here with Justinian in 534 AD. Now, the pagan priesthood infiltrating the real Christian priesthood, the pagan ideas that came into Christianity because of that, the desire of the Bishop of Rome to control the other assemblies, all of that predates this, but this is when it actually gelled, when it solidified, was under the time of Justinian. Well, if I could go back just a few centuries uh, to that, we have the Council of uh, Chalcedon that established the superiority of Roman papacy by saying, they contended that, quote, the fathers justly conferred the dignity on the throne of the Presbyter of Rome because that was the imperial city, end quote. So they thought the mission of the gospel was to unite all nations into one family and that uh, uh, these growing adversaries to true Christianity presented the world with a, a counterfeit to the, the union or unity of, and the holistic interpretation of scriptures that the true church wanted, uh, whereas uh, this growing despotism in, in Rome uh, was really on the move to defeat the reality of the kingdom of God, and by creating uh, new divisions within this uh, uh, Roman empire of popes, that um, was separated into uh, different divisions uh, or what was called councils. And, uh, and from these councils, uh, major, uh, the major belief system of Catholicism was being established. They were making things up as they were going along. Well, well Catholicism as we know it today, and right, they were making things up as they went along. But the, the, the power wasn't solidified until Justinian. There's no doubt the Roman... I was just mentioning what was leading up to Right. It. They had tried it in the past, but they were also, even with that council, there were times when they were rebuffed. And Eusebius actually explains that one bishop of Rome in the 4th century in his time tried to rebuke another bishop, and they just blew him off. They didn't all recognize that power until, and, and that's why it had to be enforced by the emperor, and that was all a political ploy, but it was enforced by Justinian, and that's when it became official, because a lot of the Christian bishops wanted nothing to do with that until they had no choice, because it became the law. And there were substructures to these councils, uh, such as uh, dioceses and provinces, which is vital. To, there's no command to make these kinds of divisions. None at all. Now, if, if it was inevitable in the Bible that the Bishop of Rome would be the leader of the one true church, it would not have needed one of Justinian's laws to enforce it. It would have been inevitable to Christians everywhere if it were in the Bible. It's not in the Bible anywhere. It's a false structure. Now, when, when, when the... When the Byzantine Empire was diminished in later years, the Pope was able to accrue more and more power. And that actually assisted the Pope in his gaining hegemony over all of Europe with the diminishment of Byzantium. 
to the Arab and the Turkish conquests. And this aspiration for uh, the Pope having um, uh, all power uh, was declaring himself kind of a, a neo-high priest of Christendom, whereas uh, I thought that's what was nailed to the cross, the old Levitical order of there was no longer a high priest. Right. We only need one high priest, and that was Christ himself. Right. That, now, the, um, the, you know, it's an idea in Roman history, and we could find this going all the way back to the 4th century B.C., and it's attributed to the founding of Rome. Now, whether it was actually existent in the founding of Rome is immaterial. It's attributed to the founding of Rome. It's attributed by Livy, the Roman historian, by... Um, uh, by um, the author, Virgil, the author of the Aeneid, the, the, the famous Roman poem from the first century BC, that at the founding of Rome, Silvius Brutus became the king, and his brother Julius became the high priest of Jove, who was later known as Jupiter, mm -hmm. which is a contraction for Jove the father, just like Yahweh the father, the the father god of the Old Testament. Now, that idea of the ruling family holding the kingship and the priesthood had been in Rome from Rome's founding, 753 B.C., according to these ancient writers. Now, with Caesar, because he was of the Julian clan, he solidified the emperorship and the priesthood under the emperor. And the emperor became the de facto religious leader. He had control over the religion as well as over the government. And that unified that. And we see that same pattern later with the popes. It's interesting to note that um, the Catholic Church did not want the word of God uh, uh, for the, the common people to have free access to it. And, and no wonder, because um, I think it's in the Psalms that it tells us to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters and iron. And uh, uh, today, um, they would say that um, for all intents and purposes, the ecclesia, or the called out ones, uh, of God are defunct in the eyes of God or in the eyes of Rome. Was that a Freudian slip? <laughs> uh, just as we are today. The, the Judeo-Christian churches uh, don't recognize any ecclesia or called out ones of God because it's an exclusive nature in, in a racial sense. And by the same token, there's no Melchizedek priesthood recognized by the establishment church then or now, and it's only a Christian identity movement that embraces it as our rightful heritage. And, and the ecclesia, the idea of that word ecclesia in Athens, right? And that's where the word began. That's the origination of, the origination of the word is in Athenian politics. In Athens, in order to be a citizen of the city, you had to be a member of one of the founding families of the city. You couldn't just move to Athens and vote. The ecclesia 
were the men of those families, 20 years up and older, who were to report to the assembly of the people to decide on the business of the city whenever there was a calling. There was a calling, the sound went out, and they were the ecclesia. They responded. They were the ecclesia whether they were assembled or not. When they were assembled, they decided and voted on the matters pertaining to the business of the city. That's the idea in Greek um, politics, in Greek citizenry of the ecclesia. And that's how the word was understood to the Christians, that all of the children of Israel, all of the descendants, all of the heirs of the covenant were the ecclesia. And those who answered came to the favor of God. They were his church. They were the ecclesia. And we learn this in Paul and in the Acts. They were the ecclesia whether or not they were gathered in one place. They were still the ecclesia. They were the called out ones of God. It didn't matter whether or not they were gathered. And in a sense, the word ecclesia has, has lost its meaning because it's been translated as church. It, and by that, it's been reckoned as an institution or a building. Right. Uh, and the, the Catholic church has lost the original meaning of ecclesia. Well, well absolutely. Now, the word church comes from a Greek word, koriakos, and it came to us through German. And koriakos is the genitive form of kurios. It means of the Lord. But are sometimes uh, it's translated as church? Well, well, yes, but that's the root like of the, the word. Yeah, yes, it is translated as church. It's always translated as church in the King James. It's been exploited by the Catholics. Well, well yes, if they call themselves the church right it's definitely been exploited by them and you know what when the catholics think that they're the one true church and when you look at paul's epistles to the romans he wrote to the assemblies at rome and the plural there were all different little ecclesias where the people of the ecclesia gathered and each one of those was an ecclesia of its own when it was gathered or where they gathered and those people weren't one true church they were all separate little churches that paul dealt with both together and on a one-to-one separate basis there was no command structure between those separate different ecclesias when paul wrote to the, um, I, I, he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to the, the assemblies of Corinth, he wrote to the assemblies, plural, of Galatia. He wrote to different churches, one epistle that they would share among them. That they weren't, that there was never the concept of one megalithic true church in Paul, because the true ecclesia was the body of the children of Israel in the world, all of them, no matter where they were gathered. And you can't replace a race with an organization, right. which is what the church has attempted to do. They might be a church, but it's a false church, the, the apostate. That there's somebody's called out, that they're the Pope's called out, that they're not God's called out. Some of them are, 
But most of the, most of the Catholics in the world today, they they can't be members of God's ecclesia because they're not children of Israel. I can only consider the Catholic Church evil uh, once you get to uh, be fully informed as to its true nature. And um, James 4.4 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And uh, that seems to be um, the target market for the Catholic Church is the world itself rather than Christ. The Catholic Church is always conforming itself to the world. Now they're apologizing for the Holocaust. Yeah. Isn't that conforming themselves to the world to please the Jews, the enemies of God? Uh, it's, it's very much chameleon-like uh, in order to uh, attract whatever demographic they want to include in uh, their one-world church. They're, they're the main uh, proponents of ecumenic, ecumenicalism, and, which is uh, a, a final one-world church under their umbrella with the Pope as the uh, high priest of the world. Well, well, that's why they would push so hard for ecumenism so that they could rule over all the other churches as well, or, or all the other different heretical sects as well. So I, I believe it's evil, and um, uh, we're told in several psalms that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and that the fear of the Lord is also to hate evil. And so... Uh, I remember that uh, recently I did that series on universalism on trial uh, in which I expounded upon the evils of universalism uh, in which Catholicism and, and the word universal, uh, universalism has uh, in later times taken on a new meaning other than the one that you mentioned earlier. Uh, it is really... Uh, permeated the Judeo-Christian world almost as the bastard child of uh, Catholic doctrines that have mangled the truth through the centuries. Um, and so uh, from that, um, uh, I, I've, I've uh, pursued this subject uh, with the intent that it's okay to to hate the Catholic Church uh, because everything about it is unacceptable. It is not, as I said earlier in my opening statement, the Catholic Church is not synonymous with Christianity. In fact, it's the antithesis of, of what Christ stood for. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, some of the heresies that, that um, ended up in the Catholic Church and where they came from? Well, there was a little bit more about Peter, um, if you wanted to touch on that. Well, I could quote, I could quote um, from where I left off before, and, and Christ said, and I say to you that you are a stone, yet upon this bedrock shall I build my assembly, meaning the bedrock and not, not Peter, because Peter's only a stone. And later in Peter's epistles, Peter tells us all as believers that we're all living stones. 
We are all little Peters once we turn to Christ. We become stones in that real building of the body of Christ, which is the true church. Now, Christ goes on to say, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I shall give you, and, and the word, I translate the word very literally, the little keys of the kingdom of the heavens. He whom you should bind upon the earth shall be bound in the heavens, and he whom you should release upon the earth shall be released in the heavens. Now, this is in Matthew chapter 16, from verses 13 through 19 that I've quoted. But in Matthew chapter 18, Christ is talking to the other apostles in general, and he says in verse 15, now if your brother should do wrong, you must go censure him between you and him only. If perhaps he should hear you, you have gained a brother. But if he should not hear, take with you one or two besides in order that by the mouths of two witnesses or three, every matter is established. Well, I could say that the Romish church doesn't have three witnesses for its founding on Peter, that's for sure. But Christ goes on to say, and if he should ignore them, tell it to the assembly. Then if also he should ignore the assembly, he must be to you as the heathens and the tax collectors. Truly I say to you, speaking to the apostles in general, to his followers in general, whoever you shall bind upon the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whoever you shall loose upon the earth shall be loosed in heaven. He was saying this to Christians in general, not to Peter alone, two chapters later. So that, that, that statement to Peter alone has to be taken in the general context that this ability that Christ gave to Peter was the ability of Christians in general, not making Peter special. Right, it was exalting Christ, not Peter. Right, Christianity should exalt, exalt Christ. In that. and, and that's the problem with the Catholic Church. One of their um, uh, main arguments for being the true church is what's called apostolic succession, in which they say uh, the first pope was Peter. But if we can debunk that, um, we can show that uh, the Catholic Church is a false church, and it's based on a big lie. Well, well, basically, some of the early Christian writers say that Peter died in Rome. But there is absolutely no biblical or historical evidence of Peter's ever having actually been in Rome before his execution. And some of the early Christian writers say that Peter preached in Rome and was executed there. But when he preached in Rome, is not known. Peter was not in Rome before Paul wrote his epistle. Peter's own epistles state explicitly that he was in Babylon. There's no reason to believe that Peter was using Babylon as a code word for Rome. And if those Catholic supporters and Catholic apologists want to say that Peter was using Babylon as a code word for Rome in his epistle, they better accept Babylon as a code word for Rome when you get to Revelation chapter 18, and they all deny that. So they're hypocrites. Peter was never in Rome 
while Christianity was being formed in Rome. There's no evidence that Peter was ever in Rome before Paul was. And when Paul got to Rome, there were many Christian assemblies already in Rome that had long been founded, and that's before Peter or Paul ever got there. Well, and plus, it's commonly accepted that Christ commissioned Peter to become the chief minister to the circumcised in Judea. Right. Uh, not to the uncircumcised uh, Gentile nations like Rome. And, and we have Peter in, in Acts chapter 15, and Paul, by his chronology in Galatians, Acts chapter 15 is at least 14 years after the crucifixion, and Peter is still in Jerusalem. And Paul said um, in Romans 1.11, I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. And, and we know that Paul is commonly associated with being uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. And here he's saying that he's part of establishing Rome uh, in, the faith. In, Christian, uh, in the Christian belief, yeah. And, and there's no evidence at all, historically or scripturally, that Peter was ever in Rome up to that time. None whatsoever. Uh, Catholics would have us believe that Peter had done this some 10 years before in the reign of Claudius. Um, but Paul distinctly informs us that Peter was not in Rome in, in 65 AD, even though the Catholics say he was. Paul said, only Luke is with me in 2 Timothy 4.11. And so the truth becomes very plain. Paul wrote to Rome, and he never mentioned Peter, but the last moment he says, only Luke is with me. When he's in Rome, because he's in Rome when he says, only Luke is with me. I mean, if writing Peter was Timothy. there, he would say that, and right. Peter. Where Paul is writing to Timothy, he expects his imminent death, and he says, only Luke is with me. And the year has to be at least 62 AD. Peter was not in Rome up to 62 AD. Well, uh, near 45 AD, we find Peter being cast into prison at Jerusalem in Acts 12, 3 and 4. In 49 AD, he was still in Jerusalem, uh, this time attending the Jerusalem Council. And about 51 AD, he was in Antioch, where he got into the differences with Paul because he wouldn't sit or eat with the Gentiles. Right. Let me just say that the 49 AD differs from my 40. 6 AD date by three years, and that's an understanding of Galatians, and it's not wrong. Paul says that after three years, he, he had gone to Damascus after his conversion, and then after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem. And it's really kind of ambiguous. If the 14 years is including the three years, or if it's added to the three years, it's really ambiguous. So I usually include it in the three years, but we could just as easily add it and imagine that the Council of Jerusalem was in a later date, 48 or 49. I had 45 because I believe the crucifixion happened in 32. Well, it's not the dates that are so much... Uh, what well, was the fact that Peter was in Jerusalem? As much as he refused to sit with... Uh, what he would considered the unclean right uh, at that time, and, and yet the Catholics want to make him the uh, bishop of the unclean Romans. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Peter's mission was to the circumcision. Right now, now his epistles 
and I can establish this, this, were written to the uncircumcised people of Western Anatolia, where Paul established assemblies. But just because he wrote epistles to them doesn't mean that his mission was to, to them. His mission was to the circumcision, and that's why he was in Babylon. Because there were a great amount, it was still there, that there was a great amount Israelites. of the remnant of Judah deported to Babylon. They weren't all bad figs. A good part of the word, but they were, there were a lot of good figs there, and Peter was still there trying to reach those people. Yeah. Where would you like to go next? I mean, we have a lot of obvious anti-Catholic verses in the Scripture. That there's um, <clears throat> Revelation nine chapter twenty talking about idols, a- and I can I can date this with confidence because Revelation chapter nine is a prophecy of the Arab and Turkic conquests of parts of Europe, parts of the white Christian world, a- and this is after the Turkic conquest and the fall of Byzantium, and it says, and the rest of the men, those who had not been killed by these plagues, did not even repent from the works of their hands that they do not worship demons. Now, Paul tells us that the demons want to be, to be worshipped as gods in Colossians. The fallen angels want to be worshipped as gods, and that's where the false pagan religions came from. Now, these saints that the Catholic Church made, they weren't Christians. They had taken down the signs of the pagan temples and replaced these ideas. If you look at Greco-Roman mythology, the Greeks and Romans had a demon. They had a false god for every compartment of life. And later on, the Catholic Church has a saint for all of those same functions. For every function that the Romans and Greeks imagined a god or an idol to command or have power over, the Catholic Church claimed a saint to have a power over that function. A good example is the Greek idol Eros, the god of love, and the Catholic St. Valentine's, the saint of love. That's a perfect example. It's only one, and there are many, but that's one. And here it tells us not to, that they didn't repent from the worship of demons and idols. The ideas of saints having power over God's creation after they're dead, that's a demon. And the idea of worshiping a statue, that's an idol. It's an image. It's a graven image. uh, In Catholic architecture and art, uh, there's all kinds of representations of gargoyles and demons. And they're demons, right. And um, uh, I have an uh, article here from the London Times, uh, March 10th, 2010. The chief exorcist, Father Gabriel Amorth, says the devil is in the Vatican. Well, he's in a chair in the Vatican wearing a little beanie, I think. Well, this is an interesting (laughs) article, if I may relate it uh, to you. Uh, It says, sex abuse scandals in the Roman Catholic Church are proof that the devil is at work inside the Vatican, according to 
the Holy See's chief exorcist, uh, who's been there for 25 years and says he's dealt with 70,000 cases of demonic possession, it said that the consequence of satanic infiltration included power struggles at the Vatican as well as cardinals who do not believe in Jesus and bishops who are linked to the demon. He added, when one speaks of the smoke of Satan, a phrase coined by Pope Paul VI in 1972 in the Holy Rooms, it is all true, including these latest stories of violence and pedophilia. He claimed that another example of satanic behavior was the Vatican cover-up of the deaths in 1998 of Alois Isterman and then com the then commander of the Swiss Guard. Uh, he said some cardinals are even members of satanic sects. But the, in the past, he suggested that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin were possessed by the devil, and he was among Vatican officials who warned that J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter novels made a false distinction between black and white magic. And he approves, however, of the 1973 film, The Exorcist, and he is now president of the AOE, the Association of Exorcists. Wow. That's, that's incredible that they, they embrace that. Well, that there's a distinction between white and black magic? That there, it's all evil. <laughs> it doesn't, the children of Israel were told to stay away from all that. When Paul preached, I, I, I think it, it may have been Thessalonica. I forget the exact count. It's in the Acts. It's in like chapter 17, 18. Paul went and preached in a certain town and they brought all their books out, their books of magic, and burned them. There are no good magic books in Christianity. And they burned the books, and Luke recorded that the value of the books was 50,000 pieces of silver. They didn't even try to sell those books to the Jews and probably could have used them. <laughs> well, let's look at one of the, uh, the most absurd uh, uh, ceremonies that they practice, and uh, uh, this is what I call the uh, the, the wafer god or the, the cookie god. Uh, Bill, let's say I was holding a, a Ritz cracker in my hand, and uh, I took a felt-tip marker and I, I drew a cross on it, and I told you, this is Jesus Christ, and you should get down on your knees and worship this Ritz cracker. What would you say to that? That's absolutely nuts. But that's what they do. That is exactly what they do uh, when they partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, making it a total abomination, uh, using the bread or wafer in their mass, which they call the host. And when the host has been consecrated and blessed by the uh, priest, offered as a sacrifice in the Mass, it then becomes the Eucharist. And uh, just to put this in everyday language, uh, this is one of the great motivating forces behind the Roman Catholic institution. It's the Eucharist, which we could call the Jesus cookie. Uh, now I know Catholics will probably be offended by this, but uh, this is... Uh, uh, 
what they, they cannot deny that the, the body and blood, uh, along with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, are, they believe, truly and really substantiated uh, in this sacrament, which they call the Most Holy Eucharist. And if anyone, any Protestant or even Christian identity, were to tell them that it's merely a sign or a figure, it is part of their religious belief to curse those that say such things. That's how strongly they believe that a cracker is their God. <laughs> that, well, well, yes. They're cursed for not taking their word for it. That's absolutely incredible. The, the, um, the idea of the communion is that Christians, Christian Israelites, real Christians, have been saved by the sacrifice of Christ. And for that reason, we should give continual thanks to him for our preservation. When we have communion, the, the, the idea of communion, koinonia in Greek, is the sharing of things in common. That as he gave his life for us, we should devote our lives to each other and commemorate him in that devotion. When we bless our bread and we bless our meal and our wine and everything we partake of and share in common, we commemorate Christ and praise him because through him, we're able to partake of these things and we're able to share them with each other. That's the real idea of communion and the real body and blood of Christ should be the people sitting around the table. It's not the host and the wine. They represent the, the, the communion that we have together in him. And I think we're told to do it in an honorable fashion and not to take it lightly, whereas the Catholics... This is grand theater. It's the most pompous ceremony that they have in their religion. And, and to the uh, person on the street who's not a Catholic, it's laughable because they're, they're taking uh, a little piece of bread uh, and saying that it is transformed into Jesus Christ and is to be worshipped as God. Well, Paul's idea of communion was the sharing of things around a table. Christ, when he gave the Last Supper, where did that happen? With a bunch of his friends, his kinsmen, around a table at dinner. That's where it happened. That was Paul's example. When Paul told the Corinthians, when he scolded them, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he scolded them because some people were bringing meals, elaborate meals to the temple, and others were doing without, without those things, and they were going hungry at their assemblies. Well, Paul scolded them, and he said to them, don't you have houses to eat and drink at? Their communion was supposed to be at home. Paul, on a ship, told the men of the ship in Acts chapter 27 that they'd gone 14 days without food, and he took bread, and he broke it, and he he, he motioned towards heaven and gave thanks to God, and he gave out that bread to be shared among these men that had gone without food for so long. 
That's the example of communion. It's no big special ritual that we do in a church. It's something that we do every day at our table. We thank our God for our salvation. And as we are share, have a share in that salvation, we share what we have with our brethren. That's real communion. Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, the spirit of the communion is, is not to um, flaunt a big meal in, in front of those less fortunate, the, the poor of your community. Absolutely. And yet, the, the Catholic Church um, spares no expense at the, uh, the grandeur uh, of this uh, ceremony, especially in the Vatican, uh, if you've ever uh, seen that uh, on TV every Christmas, they, they have a, a grand uh, ceremony uh, of the Mass. Uh, but in, in terms of wealth, uh, richness is... Uh, the, Speaking of evil, you know, the root of all evil is the love of money. And uh, where is that more reflected in a church than the Vatican uh, with such ornate opulence in, in everywhere you look? And, uh, and the, uh, the bank account uh, of the, uh, the church itself is interesting. Uh, I've read where the Vatican has very large investments with the uh, Rothschilds in Britain, France, and here in America with various uh, banks. And that uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, said that the Vatican's financial deals in the U.S. alone were so big that very often it sold or bought gold in lots of a million or more dollars at a time. And, uh, quote, the Vatican's treasure of solid gold has been estimated by the United Nations World Magazine to amount to several billion dollars. A large bulk of this store is stored in gold ingots with the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, while banks in England and Switzerland hold the rest. But this is just a small portion of the wealth of the Vatican, which is in the U.S. alone, is a greater than that of the five wealthiest giant corporations of the country. When to that is added all the real estate, the property, the stocks and shares abroad, then the staggering accumulation of the wealth of the Catholic Church becomes so formidable as to defy any rational assessment. The Catholic Church is the biggest financial power, wealth, accumulator and property owner in existence. She is a greater possessor of material riches than any other single institution, corporation, bank, giant trust, government, or state of the whole globe, end quote, the Wall Street Journal. You know, that brings me to discuss the word cleric. Because the word cleric, the clergy, where is it in the Bible? I don't recall seeing that word. Anymore. It doesn't exist in the Bible. The word clergy does not exist in the scripture. The word cleric does not exist in the scripture. 
I'd like to describe what a cleric is. In ancient Athens, when the Athenians created a colony overseas and had a beachhead in a foreign land, a patch of uh, an area of ground in a foreign land, they created an allotment. An allotment is a clerus. And they created, they appointed an allotment holder to rule over that land on behalf of the Athenians. And the allotment holder is a clerucus. And that is the origin of the word cleric. And when the Catholic Church creates a diocese, they call them today, and they appoint a bishop over that diocese, or an archbishop, he becomes the equivalent of a clerucus. He is the allotment holder of that diocese for the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church lays claim on the whole world because they claim to be the substitute for God on earth. The world was promised to who? The world was promised to the seed of Abraham. They are bold enough to claim to be replacing the seed of Abraham and that the world is theirs. And wherever they put their cleric, that cleric is an allotment holder for the Pope and for the, for the Catholic Church. He is holding that land for the Pope. And that's, that it's, the meaning is hidden in ancient Greek, but it's blatantly right in front of our faces. There's no cleric in the Bible. Well, let's talk about one of the, the clerics of all clerics, uh, character called Simon Magus. Uh, we had uh, clarified something uh, a couple of days ago that I wasn't aware of. We, I think a lot of people in Christian identity have heard about Simon Magus from uh, Alexander Hislop's The Two Babylons. And uh, you're uh, a notch above uh, most of our CI scholars in, in understanding uh, some of the errors that are found in Hislop's book. Uh, especially some of the assertions about Simon Magus. Um, do you want me to do a little synopsis of him, and then, or do you want to go right into well, or debunking you, the... Uh, you you the, can do a synopsis on, on Simon Magus, and, and then I'll comment on it. Okay, and, uh, well, the, uh, the presumption is that the, the real Peter, uh, or the counterfeit Peter, in which the the bedrock or foundation of the Catholic Church that is built upon is not um, Simon Peter, but uh, Simon Magus. And uh, I've always uh, uh, understood that from Hislop's book. But um, um, this was uh, a, a character that uh, is mentioned in... Um, the book of Acts, where we're given a clue about um, what he was doing at that time. And uh, he was a Samaritan in Rome after the, the death of Christ, uh, but it was not the apostle Peter who was an Israelite. Uh, so we have uh, two competing personalities here. One's a Samaritan, one's an Israelite. And uh, unfortunately, this conflict between the two Peters did not 
go its separate way, but tried mixing into one's religious system. And this is why there's so many pagan ideas and, and doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church. Some of these concepts crept in over time, but many were there from the very beginning, thanks to this uh, Simon Magus guy. Um, this quarrel happened between Simon Magus, who was considered a pagan high priest, and the apostles Peter and Philip. The reason Luke describes the intentions of this man is, is really so thoroughly profound, had a, such a profound effect that he and his followers had on uh, God's church in Asia Minor and Greece and especially Rome, that uh, by 62 AD, um, when Luke composed the book of Acts, it caused the, the true church so much trouble that Luke had to show the people that he was not, as he claimed to be, uh, a part of the Christian church. And uh, he was also known as a, a magician and uh, could really dazzle the crowds of his day, so much so that when he went to Rome, um, didn't say exactly what kind of uh, magic tricks he was performing, but they must have been of uh, uh, such a... Uh, a uh, high level that uh, they considered him God. <laughs> and uh, uh, from that, uh, he, he may not necessarily have been the, the founder of the Catholic Church, but uh, he was a, a great influence, and the disciples and the apostles were well aware of the damage that he was causing. And I'll let you take it from there. Well, well there's no doubt. And by read, from reading Irenaeus and Tertullian and some of the other, and I'm going to read a section of Irenaeus in, in a few minutes from his Against Heresies. There's no doubt that Simon Magus is, according to the earliest Christian writers, the author of many of the heresies that made it into the later Roman Catholic Church these heresies were perpetuated through magicians and, and, and pagan priests who had learned them from Simon Magus or they originated and spread from Simon Magus. And these pagan priests later brought them in to what became known as the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church has those heresies, some of them to this very day. Now, now, Hislop, just as an aside, Hislop was a reformer. Hislop looked for every charge possible to take and sling at the Catholic Church, and some of them are legitimate, and a lot of them are pretty wild, hoping that enough of them would stick in the eyes of the people that he could discredit the Catholic Church. I'm not saying the Catholic Church wasn't worthy of discreditation. It surely should have been discredited. But Hislop didn't have to go as far as he did in many areas and, and actually make up stories. I mean, he made up a story about Semiramis, which is basically I can't find in any ancient writing, and the virgin birth, to fling that at the Catholic Church. We always want the truth, and uh, all it takes is two or more witnesses to establish a matter. Well, well right. And, and Paul that should says, suffice. Right. And Paul says in Romans, if my lie magnifies God, why am I still called a liar? Well, well, because a lie is a lie, and no lie is the truth. 
And Paul's using himself as an example. Why would I be lying to magnify God? I'm going to be branded a liar. So we don't need to lie. God doesn't need our help in that sense. We don't need to embellish stories or create stories to help God. Because the truth stands on its own. Simon Magus talked about Semiramis. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, Hislop talked about Semiramis. He talked about the title Pontifex Maximus. He gave a story that it came from Babylon through humanities of, and Adalus, the Italic kings of Pergamus, and the last Adalid king of Pergamus bequeathed it on the Roman people. That's not true. I don't know if Hislop believed that is true or not, but it's not true because in Roman literature, it could be established in Livy and several other Roman writers that the title Pontifex Maximus belonged to the chief priest of Rome from at least the 4th century B.C., which was at least 200 years before the last king of Pergamus died, that this title was in Rome. So it couldn't have come to Rome for the king of Pergamus. Now, it is true, it is absolutely true that the Pontifex Maximus is named that because he is the chief bridge builder, and he was seen as the highest route to God. And if you were a commoner, you needed a priest to communicate with the God for you. That's an antichrist precept. That's, and all of us, all Christians are equals, and we all have the same entrance to the Father that Paul talked about on an equal basis. Not one Christian has a better opportunity of communicating with God than any other Christian. But we don't build bridges where we ought not go. Well, well right, absolutely. And, and there's no chief, the only chief, Christ is the bridge builder. He gave us that entrance to the Father. He reconciled us to God. So he's the only bridge builder. None of us could ever claim to have a part in that. And that's actually a, by the, by the, the word pontiff is a shortening of pontifex. And, and by using the title pontiff, the Pope is claiming to be the bridge to God. That is blasphemy. That's an absolute heresy. Well, John 10.33 clearly gives the definition of blasphemy as a mere man claiming to be God. Right. Well, Simon Magus did establish and was, according to Irenaeus and other early Christian writers, the author of several heresies which are still around today. One of those heresies, a very important one, because we hear this today. We hear it from Catholics. We hear it from New Age freaks that that Old Testament God was a mean, wicked God. And our New Testament God is a God of love. And he loves everybody. That heresy, according to Irenaeus, came from Simon Magus. And we still hear that repeated today, that the God Jesus or Jesus' father isn't the mean God that that Old Testament God was. So we're going to be New Testament Christians. We're going to reject the entire Old Testament. That's a heresy which the earliest Christian writers attributed to Simon Magus. Defining a statement in Malachi, I change not. Right. It defies the statement which is in Malachi, which is also repeated in the New Testament. And it's repeated in the letters of Paul, that God does not change. 
Now, Marcion, who I mentioned earlier, Marcion was one of the ones that rejected the entire Old Testament. That's why he rejected the Old Testament. And Irenaeus tells us that Marcion got that heresy from Simon Magus, that he rejected the Old Testament because of Simon Magus, and he also rejected every book in the New Testament except Luke and the letters of Paul, and where Luke and the letters of Paul are found, according to Irenaeus, Marcion cut out the Old Testament references, so he didn't even accept all of them. Well, if you want to talk about blasphemies, I have a few uh, documented quotations from Catholic sources themselves that are most interesting, if I could just give a few examples. Quote, the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh, the Catholic National in July 1895. Quote, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God, the vicar of God, end quote, the Catholic Encyclopedia. The replacement for God. Oh, only a dead man needs a replacement. Does a living God need a vicar? Vicar, vicarious is a Latin word. It means replacement. That sounds like viper. <laughs> well, yeah, right. A, a dead God needs a replacement. A dead Christ needs a replacement. By calling himself the vicar, they're denying the resurrection, and they're denying the efficacy of God himself in the world. You know, people throughout history could probably figure this out for themselves and is why the Pope and the Catholic Church were considered uh, the Antichrist. Uh, the Antichrist meaning a replacement. Right. The, the Reformers believed the Pope was the Antichrist. Now, John tells us that those who deny that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Antichrist. They are the Antichrist. And he mentions the word in the plural. So the Reformers didn't really have a good idea of the Antichrist, but labeling the Pope as the Antichrist, when he's speaking great words against the Almighty, that's not improper. That's a proper use of the term. If you're going to deny the saving power of Christ, if you're going to claim that you can enhance that, you're an Antichrist. Peter denied the words of God, and even he at that one point was called adversary. He was called Satan. He is not the satanic entity, but he was being satanic. And if you're going to deny God, you may as well go off and, and, and join the rest of them. I mean, it's, and, and that's the example that's being set there. Well, I think uh, you mentioned the other day that um, uh, it was really getting bad for the Catholic Church when the Pope himself was arrested by Napoleon. And there were only how many people left in town? A uh, uh, hundred people or so. Well, well, not at that time. Not at that time. I, I wanted. What well, we were having a discussion about Rome, and I used the history of the period of the Gothic invasions of Italy and the war with Belisarius against the Goths. Now, Belisarius was Justinian's most famous general. 
That's going further back in time. It, it, we're at 530 BC now. I'm sorry, 530 AD now. We're in the 6th century. And the population of Rome was down to perhaps 100 people. This is according to Procopius. Procopius was Bel Belisarius's assistant. He was in the field with Belisarius. He was his secretary and his assistant, and he had a very good grip on what was going on. He witnessed all these wars firsthand, and he wrote an account of them. And he said, I believe he said a few dozen people. The population of Rome was down to a very small number at the time when Belisarius was trying to reconquer Italy from the Goths for the Eastern Roman Emperor. And at that same time, that same emperor established the power of the Bishop of Rome over all the other Christian assemblies. That is the, the, the destruction of the head of the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. At the same time that we have the healing of that head, which became the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, which is the papacy. And that can be demonstrated not only from Revelation 13, but also from Daniel chapter 7, which I've already cited tonight. Once we realize that's the papacy, we see from 530 B.C. to the arrest of the Pope sometime around 1790 B.C. And, and the decree was actually made 1790 A.D., I'm sorry. From 530 to 1790, is 1260 years. That was supposed to be the duration of that beast. The papacy was the second beast of Revelation 13. Where I was going with that um, was that the church was at a, a low ebb, obviously, if their own pope is being arrested. Um, well, well, right, and that's the end of the papal reign over the kings of Europe. They never recovered that after that. Uh, that was a significant uh, period of time um, from that, uh, there was a conspiracy of the, uh, the Jesuit arm of the Catholic Church to concoct uh, something to counter this Antichrist accusation, and that was the rapture, uh, which is a complete diversion away from right. the Catholic Church. That, that's when they, they in, in that period of time, when the reformers were labeled, and it started before 1789, it started in the 1500s, when the reformers were labeling the church, and I have artwork on Christogenia, of reformer drawings that showed the church as a, a big pyramid of serpents, that showed the pope as the antichrist, as a wicked demon, making the proclamation, ego sum papa, which means I am the father which is blasphemy, and many other um, interesting drawings of reformers which are labeling the popes as the Antichrist in the 15 and 1600s. And that built up to eventually the time when the popes were actually arrested and the reign was ended. But the Jesuits did something more treacherous during that period because they emancipated the Jews. And in, in my purview, that's when Satan crawled out of the pit. The Jews were able to come out of the ghetto. And after over a thousand years, they were able to once again assert their treachery and rule over Christians. 
And that started at that time. And that's what's led to all the conspiracies and the rise of the House of Rothschild and world Jewry in the world as we have it today. So it was good that it killed and ended that second beast, but it let Satan out of the pit. And where well, it, it led to all the troubles and, and these last seven vials and a lot of the other things in, in the Revelation. So, so we, by, by fixing one perceived problem, history led us right to another, but it's all written in the Revelation. It's all written in the word, word of God the way I see the rapture certainly was a, a masterpiece of uh, propaganda and manipulation. Because it deflected that reformer accusation that the Pope was the Antichrist, and they got their followers to believe in this future super-duper Antichrist that was going to do all kinds of evil things, and this future tribulation, and it deflected all of that off of the Popes, and it was very successful. It's so successful that today most of Protestantism believes it. Well, I think that's why a program like this is important to uh, get back to the idea that the Catholic Church is evil and, and they're skating on a, a, a free pass right now, I think, uh, with, with the, uh, the church world, uh, the, the Protestant world, uh, thinking that... Uh, I think uh, Billy Graham said one time that now the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church are brothers hand in hand. Well, well, they basically are. They basically, they all teach the same doctrine. They all teach the same vile, universalist, love everybody, marry anybody you want. There's no, it's a total breakdown of Christian religion for a, re, a, a new world order, new age Jewish religion. It's Judaism extended to the masses. Well, lurking in the shadows, uh, the, the Jesuits I, I perceive as something similar to the Mossad, what the Mossad is to the Israeli. Well, well, a lot of the Jesuits actually were, a lot of the Jesuit founders actually were Murano Jews from Spain and Portugal. Right, crypto Jews that impersonated uh, yes. uh, Christians at that time. Now, now, one of the most notable Jesuits was Adam Weishaupt, and he was a Jew adopted into a Christian family and brought up a Jesuit, the founder and, of the Illuminati. Yes. Well, well, there's um. Marciana Pontus. Well, let me read this because another one of the heresies. And we see this a lot in interpretations of Genesis 1. We've even seen this in Christian identity. And, and this is really incredible. One of, uh, according to Irenaeus, Against Heresies, chapter 27, book 2, one of Simon, one of Simon Magus's heresies, which he initiated, was the idea that God the Father, the Father God of the Christ, was not the creator of the universe, that the angels created the universe. That heresy, and we see people today trying to attribute the Genesis 1 creation to Elohim and saying that that's not Yahweh the Father God, that's the angels, or that's some lesser God. And both of those interpretations 
either whether it be the angels who created the world in Genesis chapter 1 or some lesser god who created the world in Genesis chapter 1, and he was that evil, mean god of the Hebrews, both of those heresies, both of them are attributed to Simon Magus because one of them is really just a variation of the other, that there's some creator other than the Father, and that he's responsible for the Old Testament. And that's a heresy, according to Irenaeus, of Simon Magus. And I've seen that, I don't know if you have, but I've seen that repeated in Christian identity circles. Well, I'm sure it's there, and uh, uh, when people, uh, it says our people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and uh, hopefully this program tonight will uh, pique people's interest in, in the truth about the Catholic Church. Um, uh, be Bereans and, and search for the truth. Um, the, the truth will make you free. And um, if we don't, we deserve what we get. Well, well, right. I think after an hour and 45 minutes, we really only scratched the surface tonight. Uh, but... Just the tip of the iceberg. But, uh, you know, there, there has been a Catholic threat in this country uh, for several centuries. And... Um, uh, nearly uh, white Christian Americans, they, they knew uh, about Jews and Catholics, and they were not allowed to hold public office uh, because they knew the truth. And the and, first ones that banned them from public office, the Byzantine kings weren't all bad. Justinian did a horrible thing when he made the Bishop of Rome the, the, the king of the Christian world. But the first, some of his predecessors... Theodosius one, Theodosius two, they did good things. There was some good things that the early Byzantine empires did, and that the the early popes even, if I have to call the 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 bishops of Rome following Justinian's decree, if I have to call them popes, some of them actually did well in maintaining decrees of the Byzantine emperors that precluded Jews from public office, that precluded usury, that banned, kept usury under wraps, that it was disallowed, it wasn't allowed, it was unlawful, and that prevented Jews from owning Christian slaves and from trying to convert Christians. Some of the bishops of Rome, who were later known as popes, did those things and they were good. But somehow, and, and if you read Bede, Bede wrote an ecclesiastical history of Britain, and he portrayed, and I don't think he had, I don't think it was propaganda, but in Bede's time, the Gospels were being translated into all the different British dialects that the Anglo-Saxons and the Welsh were speaking at the time, and he describes that. The Gospels were being translated into vernacular German at Bede's time, but there was some transformation in the church, in the Roman church, between the time of Bede, when the church was a kinder, gentler tyranny, to the time of, of the De Medici's in the 15th century, but even to the, the, the um, tyranny and, and the persecution of some of the people like the Waldenses, which had happened in the 13th century, there was a transformation in those 500 years from a church that was a little more benefact, the benefactor of our civilization 
to a church that was tyrannical and evil. We didn't even get into the Inquisition tonight. Well, no. The eradication of whole cities and regions. Um, but you mentioned slavery, and uh, um, most of us are familiar with the, uh, the, the Jewish hand in um, spoiling much of uh, uh, our American manifest destiny, but not too many people are that familiar with uh, the Jesuits' hand in uh, conspiring against a, uh, a free and white Christian nation. But I came across a curious uh, quotation from Abraham Lincoln about the Jesuits. Uh, if I could read uh, a short paragraph here. This is from a book uh, by Charles Chiniquay called 50 Years in the Church of Rome. He says, and he's quoting Abraham Lincoln, who said, this war would never have been possible without the sinister influence of the Jesuits. We owe it to popery that we now see our land reddened with the blood of her noblest sons. Though there were great differences of opinion between the South and the North on the question of slavery, neither Jefferson Davis nor anyone of the leading men of the Confederacy would have dared to attack the North had they not relied on the promises of the Jesuits that under the mask of democracy, the money and the arms of the Roman Catholic, even the arms of France, were at their disposal if they would attack us. The Protestants of both the North and South would surely unite to exterminate the priests and the Jesuits if they could hear what Professor Morse has said to me of plots made in the city of Rome to destroy this republic. And if they could learn how the priests, the nuns, and the monks which daily land on our shores are nothing else but emissaries of the Pope to undermine our institutions, alienate the hearts of our people from our constitution and their laws, destroy our schools, and prepare a reign of anarchy here as they have done in Ireland, Mexico, and Spain, and wherever there are any people who want to be free. And then President Abraham Lincoln went on to say, is it not an absurdity to give a man a thing which he is sworn to hate, curse, and destroy? And does not the Church of Rome hate, curse, and destroy liberty of conscience wherever she can do it safely? I am for liberty of conscience in its noblest, broadest, highest sense, but I cannot give liberty of conscience to the Pope and his followers, the Papas, so long as they tell me through all their councils, theologians, and Canaan laws that their conscience orders tells them to burn my wife, strangle my children, and cut my throat when they find their opportunity. This does not seem to be understood by people today. But sooner or later, the light of common sense will make it clear to everyone that no liberty of conscience can be granted to men who are sworn to obey a pope who pretends to have the right to put to death those who differ from him in religion. And, and that's the problem that the founding fathers had when this nation, when the Constitution was being formed. A lot of them wanted to exclude Catholicism because they understood that it replaced the worship of God with worship and obedience to the Pope. And that sects like the Jesuits, 
who, who were actually formed by Jews, the Jesuit order was formed by Jews from before the emancipation because Jews had no say in government. But if they could convert to Catholicism and start their own cult within Catholicism, they could infiltrate, once again, the seats of power in government and use that as a corrupting and controlling influence. And that's what they did. Now, the founding fathers, for that reason, because these men were not, and because Catholics were not truly worshipers of God, they weren't adherents to the word of God. You can't be a worshiper of God if you're not an adherent to the word of God. They're rather obedient to this pope. They wanted to, a lot of them wanted to exclude Catholics, but it was impossible or, or at least too difficult an endeavor because there were already Catholic colonies here. Maryland was a Catholic colony. Right. Maine was very heavily populated with French Catholics. There were a lot of French Catholics down south, and, and, and they, were, they found it very hard to do, and, and they, they, didn't, they failed. But they, a lot of them would have liked to do that because bringing Catholics into a Christian nation, you're actually bringing in people who worship another God. Right. A violation of the very first commandment. Oh, absolutely. Okay, we would love to, I'd love to continue this for another hour, but I'm going to call it an eye here, and, and perhaps we could have a part two in this series one day in the future. Thank you for listening tonight. Thank you, Pastor Downey. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will see you next week when I will be conducting my programs from Shreveport, Louisiana. Amen.